Music is essential in our everyday life. Some may say that it is good for the soul. In times of war, when so many souls are lost, what music can keep the youngest of soldiers sane? I can only imagine you can go out to a drill field, see you know hundreds of soldiers with rifles doing like a ballet to uh, the music of the band. More than a hundred years later, I find the family of a soldier songbook. I, I didn't know what was going on, to tell you the truth, but I can remember my mother saying that they sang in German and they used pig Latin. And I traveled to an underground library to uncover the truth about the soldier. Hello. Hello. I'm here to see Ron McGee. Welcome to Object Obscura. This is the historical investigative podcast about people, objects, and their stories. I'm your host, Thatcher Warakas. Episode 14, Song, Soldier, Siblings. Just a listener note, on this podcast, I try to explain what each object looks like. Sometimes our descriptions don't suffice, so please check out our social media to see pictures of each object and follow along with the story. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just type in Object Obscura Podcast and you'll see our logo. If you don't have any social media, you can check the pictures out on our website, object-obscura. Dot com. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. I was gifted an object about a year ago for my birthday. This one was bought online. It was a small rectangular beige book with Army Songbook US on the front. Mine had a signature in pencil on the top cover. Like most pencil signatures, it was indiscernible. The first page inside gives a lot of valuable information about the creation of the book, it was printed in Washington, D.C. in 1918. The one that you have is the later one, published in 1918, was called the Army Songbook. This is Yari Villanueva, who was a TAPS bugler and American military, a music historian. I was actually doing research about this second edition songbook and cited an article that he had posted on his website. I wanted to get a more empirical outlook on wartime music from someone who has been a musician for the military. I was a member of the United States Air Force Band in Washington, D.C. from 1985 to 2008. I was a member of the uh, ceremonial brass, which is the ceremonial unit of the Air Force Band, uh, responsible for doing everything from military funerals at Arlington National Cemetery to arrival ceremonies at the White House, at Andrews Air Force Base, uh, retirement ceremonies. Yari has this insatiable curiosity about music from the present and past, which is evident on his website. Yari told me that there were two songbooks for World War I soldiers. The first one was called Songs of Soldiers and Sailors, U.S., and that was in 1917. 
1917 book was very different than mine, as it had a drawing on the cover, was larger in size, and had a different array of songs. But as more soldiers joined the war, the books needed to be synthesized. That's where this one comes in. Smaller font and more sheet music that was designed to fit in your pocket. These books, you know, very small, lightweight, put them in your pocket, keep them with you at all times. You know, it's the same thing with uh, soldiers who carry Bibles. Bibles were on the smaller side, too, so they could be easily carried. Back then, I mean, these soldiers carried everything on their back. I was so eager to flip through the whole book. All 90 pages of music were there, stapled in the spine of this small book. Every page had sheet music with lyrics, and some were accompanied with patriotic cartoons and illustrations. The songs inside the book were polar opposite to the unassuming bland cover. The last two pages had printed pictures of soldiers, one of song leaders marching down a street, and the other picture is titled 10,000 Singing Soldiers. It's an outdoor photograph with thousands of men standing around one small soldier on a platform far in the distance. What was he singing in this picture? There was so much to unpack. I mean, some of the songs in the book looked familiar. The Star-Spangled Banner, Swing Low Sweet Chariot, and some country's national anthems. The very popular patriotic tunes are up front. And then as you, you, know, you get to the back, you'd have you know, the more fun ones. <laughs> Looking through the book, the number one song is the Star-Spangled Banner. And of course, during mm-hmm. World War One. The Star-Spangled Banner was not our national anthem, but yet it rates, you know, the, being number one in the book when you open it up. Basically, these were the most popular songs of the time. There are a total of 88 songs in the book, ranging from all corners of popular music at the time. Even some of the songs I recognized were actually different 100 years ago. Same words, with an entirely different melody. But who were the people to choose the songs that actually made it into this book? As we got into World War One, uh, it was decided that it would be a good idea to have uh, songs collected in a book. And there was a, a thing called the Commission for Training Camp Activities, the CPCA. And what they did was they pioneered singing in the camps where soldiers were training to go off to war. And they hired civilian song leaders who would go to these camps and they would teach these songs to soldiers. And to my surprise, the CTCA is given credit on that first page of the book. Then it continues on, and compiled in assistance with the National Committee on Army and Navy Camp Music. Who is this committee? Well, it was actually a member of the CTCA who formed the National Committee. The goal was to manage all of these civilian song leaders organize camp bands in each regiment, and discern specific songs put in these books. Bands were recruited by each regiment, and each regiment was authorized, you know, a certain amount of slots for bandsmen. Basically, they would train a band leader, and this band leader then would go and recruit musicians to play. The thing is, is that this book here was not meant for a band member as these were printed for every enlisted soldier in World War I. These little books uh, were, were printed up and uh, distributed. There, there are actually hundreds of thousands of these books 
that were printed. This is also on the first page, too, for free distribution to all officers and men in the Army. This second edition book is unique because it includes battle cry music, but also camp songs. These guys were in these camps. They would drill during the day. You know, they would be uh, active in military duties, but there would also be a lot of downtime, you know, evenings especially. So this, you know, came part of an important recreation for them. Bands were used to accompany the physical training of soldiers when they did exercises uh, in the morning and also did rifle drills. The bands would play uh, waltzes and you would time yourself with your rifle. You'd up, down, front, bottom. I can only imagine you go out to a drill field, see you know hundreds of soldiers with rifles doing like a ballet. Uh, the music of the band. Remember, the songbooks were given to every soldier, and the band members got their own sheet music. And, uh, of course, what's interesting about these books, there's no real piano accompaniment to it. There's just a melody line. A lot of times, there were good musicians in the units who could basically improvise a piano part from the melody line, if a band wasn't available. But they were popular tunes that most people knew. So a good pianist would be able to, you know, look at the, the piece and be able to improvise an accompaniment to it. Goodbye, New York town, goodbye, Miss Liberty. We have to remember that back at that time, uh, we were a more musically literate society than we are today. So a lot of music was memorized. That would explain the copious amounts of asterisks attached to most of the songs in the book. It caveats on the last page that the band accompaniments for some songs are in another book for band musicians. The signature on the songbook I had was becoming more hard to read as the days went on. I realized I wouldn't be able to find this soldier's family. I did everything I could. I sent pictures to a genealogy company in Europe. I asked archivists in historical societies, and I even used handwriting analysis software, but I was just grasping at straws. It was not legible. The only thing I could see was that it was a soldier with a foreign surname, possibly Spanish or Italian. But since so many songbooks were made, it wasn't too long before I found another World War I army songbook online. This one was from eBay, and it had a name written in large letters in black ink. H. Fwelp, AEF, 1918. I thought that maybe I couldn't find the soldier since he only wrote an initial for his first name. But thankfully, his last name was quite unique. Fwelp, spelled P-F-U-E-L-B. The seller on eBay had no information on it, but he lived in Philadelphia. Maybe that's where the songbook was from. Well, I did some digging, and I found a World War I registration card for a Harry Fwelb from Philadelphia with a correctly spelled surname. I scoured through some records and found his obituary from 1969. I contacted a distant great-niece named Lisa, and I awaited a response. In the meantime, I got Fwelb's book in the mail, and there was something new. In the back of the book, there was a pencil note in a different handwriting, 
it was the same thing that was on page one. H. Fwelb, AEF, 1918. What was this AEF? The AEF were the American Expeditionary Forces, deployed in 1917 to have soldiers fight in France to defend the border to Germany, called the Western Front. It was intended to support the Allies in the war. French, British, and Canadian joined the AEF in many battles. Over one million men were in the AEF by 1918. As mentioned earlier, the songbook has many Allied countries' national anthems. French, British, Belgian, and Italian. It also is important to mention that each of these countries had their own songbooks for soldiers. This is a clear example of how the music in this book was a collection of allegiance songs, so that soldiers could sing the words of a country's national anthem while they were there. And actually, it was the bandleaders in France's AEF regiments that got the swing into traditionally simple national anthems. During World War One, there were literally just dozens and dozens and dozens of bands that went to France. And these bands were were very important to that to the morale and spirit of the troops, you know, to play that music even up close to the front. And they were also used as a great propaganda tool. There was an all-African American band that played the French national anthem, La Marseillaise, and that song is listed twice in this songbook. These were an all-African American uh, regiment known as the Harlem Hellfighters. In fact, his unit was uh, among the first uh, American troops to arrive in France. And when they arrived, they they uh, they played a jazzy arrangement of La Bassier, uh to the to the just the utter joy of the French uh, people. They not only played for their for their own unit, but they did an extensive uh, touring around France. Uh, and were just an incredible hit because most of these Europeans had not heard American jazz and not heard it being played by African Americans. That was totally, totally new to them. But to have, you know, an all-black group come and play just must have uh, turned their idea of American music upside down. you're actually hearing a recording of the Harlem Hellfighters in 1919. In most of this episode, you'll hear recordings of the music from this book in the background. Both civilian bands and military bands recorded. The Marine Band had been recording since the 1890s. And of course, Tin Pan Alley was very big uh, by the time World War I started. So you had these songsmiths who were just churning out tune after tune after tune about uh, World War One. George M. Cohan makes his big, you know, splash with his song Over There. Over there, over there, send the word, send the word over there. While I was listening to a song from this songbook, I got an email from someone I did not recognize. It was not Lisa who I contacted weeks earlier. It was Marlene. She explained in the email that this book was her grandfather's. She is the granddaughter of that Harry Fwelb I found earlier, and she lived in Philadelphia, where I first ordered this book. Uh, my name is Marlene Grass. I am retired, and we are speaking about info that you received on my grandfather. 
Henry Felb slash Harry. So we're talking about Harry Felb here. His middle name was Henry and sometimes would be called that in some documents. I mean, this all seemed too good to be true. We really found the man that owned this book. As it turned out, Marlene was told by Lisa, her cousin, that I wrote to her about the songbook. When you copied that and sent it, I didn't know what was going on, to tell you the truth, because when my cousin uh, emailed me and I thought, what is this, you know? But it looked like his handwriting. And I said, that's the only thing that made it seem real to me, because I thought, that's my grandfather's signature. I, I, I think it's definitely him. To clarify, she's actually talking about the signature in the back of the book, the one in pencil and his slanted cursive handwriting. The front large pen signature was a little unclear. As you heard Marlene say, the surname is actually pronounced Felb. Growing up, that's all we knew was Felb. And it was German, possibly with the umlaut over the U. I was so eager to hear all about her grandfather, Harry. The house that we grew up in was right down the street from my grandparents, so yes, they were very into our lives. We grew up right down the street, so they came to our house every Sunday for dinner, and everything had to be so, and he loved roast beef. My one sister... After my grandmother died, she lived with him for a couple of years. She would always say that she would just be putting the key in the door to come in after work, and he'd be sitting at the table already blessing himself, like, hurry up, get in here and sit down because I'm ready to eat. He was very family-oriented, but he could also be a stubborn German, too. So, Harry Felb worked at the Frankfurt Arsenal with his wife, Margaret, right around the time when World War I started. Frankfurt is a neighborhood in northeast Philadelphia, where most of the Feld family visited. But it was a neighborhood south of that called Bridesburg, where they lived. I will tell you also, they settled in a, an area in Philadelphia called Bridesburg, which at that time was predominantly German. So Harry actually had three other siblings, two older brothers and a younger sister. Marlene told me something about Harry related to the songbook. Bridesburg was this very small town at the time, so I guess they gathered with their neighbors, who I'm assuming were all German, I don't know, and I can remember my mother saying that they sang in German and they used pig Latin. Harry would have four daughters with Margaret McCabe, Marlene's mom Eileen being the oldest. And actually, two other daughters of Harry's were very good musicians. Marlene remembered a lot about what her mom told her over the years. And I will tell you too, he was... <laughs> A bootlegger, he made his own beer and used to put my mother on the wagon to cover it up and take it around and sell it to all the people. <laughs> the story of Harry's parents coming to the United States from Germany is kind of crazy. His mother was named Apollonia. Yeah, Apollonia Gentenheimer. Wasn't that a mouthful? <laughs> so Apollonia married John Felb Sr. after coming to the United States from southwest Germany in the early 1880s. They were sponsored from Germany by the Erdrich Broom Company in Bridesburg. His parents did come over from Germany. I don't know the exact date. I know they were married in the States in 1888. The story we were told was that the mother refused to speak or learn English. And the father eventually went back to Germany, and that's when she distributed the children. Yeah, distributed the children. When the father passed away in 1908 to double pneumonia, possibly from typhoid fever, the mother was in distress and couldn't take care of the children. They obviously couldn't make ends meet. She divvied the children up to people that she knew in the community. 
None of them had an education. Like I told you, they were just sent to these different families to learn a skill, I guess. We actually have records where each child was sent to, as they play a crucial part in this story. But something was not adding up with the songbook. I remembered a place that Yari told me to go to if I couldn't find anything on the soldier I was looking for. You also may want to check with the National World War I Museum in Kansas City. They probably have good records. They may be able to track down who the soldier was. I sent emails to research assistants at the library of the World War I Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. And they found records of the three Felb brothers. But there was a problem. Harry Felb did not fight in World War I. His other two brothers did. I told you his two brothers were in World War I. Uh, the one was very, very quiet. John, the other one, was very flamboyant, loved people. I sent her an email after this call to get a full rundown of her family tree, just to make sure I asked her what her other brothers' names were. The oldest brother was named John Jr., and the middle one was Herman. That's our guy. That's the first initial H written in the book. I then called Marlene again a few weeks later. Okay, we thought it was my grandfather, who was Harry Feld, but we discovered that he was not in World War One. Kind of drew me to maybe it was Herman's, his brother. So just to spell it out, as we'll learn, this family tree does get a little convoluted. Herman would be Marlene's great uncle. He is the quiet one she mentioned earlier. What were some of the things you remember about Herman? Not not much at all. I think I only met him like twice, and um, my grandfather took me over there. He was really a very sweet person, but he was very quiet and, I guess, shy, you could say. Um, and I did talk to my sisters to see if they remember. They remember meeting him also, but we really don't know not that much about him. And like I said, there's there's nothing. Well, that's a bummer. It is fascinating that this songbook is quite similar to the man who owned it, seemingly unassuming on the outside, that once opened up has an array of stories and information. It's just sad that very few people got to see the different sides of Herman. Here is what we later found out about him. Herman married Gertrude Heights in 1923, who already had a son from a different marriage, but they did end up having a daughter named Beverly, who actually married a distant relative of her father's wife, Jack Heights. Marlene actually remembers meeting Herman's children, but told me she didn't even know they were his kids. He also was quite social with the family in the 1920s. Most of his social life is actually from newspaper clippings. He attended social dinners, hosted parties, and even visited his brothers for a 4th of July reunion. But it seems that after World War II, there was not much contact. Well, usually I, for these objects, in each episode, I ask the people if they would want it back. Would you like it back, or do you want me to send it back to somebody who has more connection to it? I would love it. My sisters would love it, too, I'm sure. And meanwhile, since you had interest in it, I, I am going to send you these other things, because they really are kind of neat. So I sent the songbook back to where I got it from, Philadelphia. And Marlene planned to send me a packet of their family history in the mail. When Marlene held her great-uncle's songbook in her hands, she got to look at the signatures up close. And even though the handwriting in the back of the book, it definitely is my grandfather's, I think. The front of the book looks kind of shaky, so I don't know if 
it was Herman's handwriting or my grandfather just wrote that one. I don't know. All three brothers died in the 1960s, and we speculated that Harry went back to clean out Herman's things and found this book. It is possible he signed it again in the back of the book. Here's what we do know. Herman and John, both older brothers of Harry, fought in France in different infantry regiments. I wanted to find primary sources on their wartime records, because his older brother John had this exact songbook in his pocket too. Like Marlene mentioned though, in regards to the Great War, there's a lot of information about John Phelps and almost nothing on his brother Herman. When the leads started to dry up, I decided to go to one place that I know could help me, the World War I Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. I let one of the research assistants know that I was coming. What could they find on Herman Phelps? I was headed to the research center on this lower level of the massive World War I Museum building, a large memorial fortress built in 1926. I had to go to the very end of the building, to a tiny elevator, taking me, essentially underground. I walked in a long, curved corridor. It felt like almost a mile, until I saw the research center with glass doors and books on their shelves. Hello. Hello. I'm here to see Ron McGee. That's me. That's you. I'm Thatcher. Thatcher. We've been emailing back and forth a little bit. Yes. Well, I have a couple of things for you. Oh, sure. Sure, yeah, we can pick any table. So this is a researcher and historian at the World War I Museum named Ron McGee. I had actually been emailing him since I bought the first book in March. We walked over to an open table in the middle of the room and he showed me the scanned documents that were in his hands. Here's a couple of additional things I found for you. Sure. This is an application for Herman's bonus after the war. He pushed forward a photocopy of a veteran's compensation application, essentially a document that a veteran signed to get a bonus after fighting in the war. And this one was stamped 1934, 15 years after the war ended. Here's Ron again. You can see he got $20 a month for 10 months, $200. Oh, wow. That's why he filled that out, and that has information about his service. On the bottom, it actually says he got $10 a month for the next 20 months, with a total of $200. Even by 1934, $200 was a substantial amount of money. Yeah. This document lists his parents, John and Apollonia, when exactly he served overseas, and it also has his handwriting too. And it honestly does match the first page signature in the songbook. Right before I took this trip, the packet that Marlene had compiled arrived in my mailbox. I had no idea what to expect. It was a 10-page packet full of photocopied newspaper clippings, old photos, personal notes from Marlene, and an article that Brother John had written about World War I. She had a typed note with the first line saying, I'm so happy our lives have crossed. This was honestly the most heartwarming thing I experienced on the show. Again, pictures of John and Harry were abundant but only one picture existed of Herman. A family portrait around 1905, with John Sr. and Mother Apollonia looking nonplussed as ever, and the four kids resting their hands on each parent closest. Herman is close to 14 years old in this picture, standing up straight, unlike his other relaxed siblings. There were also pictures of Harry and his wife Margaret McCabe. One of the other reasons we know this wasn't Harry's book was that he got married in 1917 and had Marlene's mom, Eileen, in 1918. 
There was one letter that John wrote about his experiences in France. I have hired a voice actor to read what Herman's brother Johnny remembered about his time in France. Herman was actually in some of the same battles with his brother. With the boys in France. Letter from Sergeant John Feld, Tourney, France, February 4th, 1919. Editor, Bridesburg Tribune. There are a number of men from Bridesburg and Frankfurt in the 82nd Division. So John, who most people call Johnny, was in Company H, 328th Infantry, in the 82nd Division. And his brother Herman, the man who owned this songbook, was also in Company H, but in the 61st Infantry of the 5th Division. Both went to France and fought in some of the most pivotal battles, like the Battle of Saint-Miel and Moussargon. That second document Ron McGee printed out for me was Herman's. And then this is his official service record. Oh, wow. The equivalent of what today we call a DD-214. It shows Herman's address, where he was inducted as a soldier, and when he fought overseas. In regards to his brother John, who was sent to Europe a month after Herman, he was actually with friends he knew from Bridesburg. We were named the All-American Division for the reason we have native sons from the Atlantic to the Pacific in our midst. The immigrants, when they came over, tended to congregate in ghettos, basically, of their own ethnic group. And uh, so at very young ages, they could have easily gone out on their own because there was nothing that said they had to stay until they were 18. As you will soon find out, there were other family members close to John and Herman who also fought in France in World War I. Harry's wife's brother, Leo T. McCabe, fought in France just like his brother-in-law's. All I knew was that he fought in the same battle as Herman. I wondered if he knew John or Herman were over there with him. I think I mentioned it that my grandmother's brother was over there at the same time, and in one of his letters home, he said he had seen Herman and John over there. I was shocked. She transcribed all six handwritten letters from Leo. I've asked a friend to read excerpts of Leo's letters home, and his first account answered a lot of questions. Gettysburg, October 29th, 1917. was talking to Herman the other day. I do not see him very often. While I will close as I know no more to talk about, I remain as ever. Leo. So Leo is just 18 years old, and Herman nearly 26. And they were both inducted as soldiers in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. This is possibly the location where the Army songbooks were distributed to every soldier. We will return to Leo's story soon, as he will fight in the same battle with Herman eight months later. Let us turn to the Feld brothers. Most of the other information about the brothers in battle comes from copious amounts of articles written about John. Herman was indeed overshadowed by his older brother Johnny. Here is Marlene again. Well, Johnny was even more open to my grave. He would have told you the world. He didn't hold anything back. He loved Hollywood and got all these autographs from the actors and actresses of the day. I actually found a detailed 1960 obituary for John Felb. In the headline, they called him the Autograph Man. He had books filled with famous people's autographs. Richard Nixon, actor Errol Flynn, and boxer Jack Dempsey, to name a few. But Marlene didn't get to know her great uncles very well, partly because of how they were raised before the war. 
This is the brief story of how the Phelps siblings were given off to other families that I alluded to earlier. Uh, they saw hmm. one another, they spoke to one another, but I think they didn't have that bond since they were, they were really raised separately. My grandfather was sent with a family who was a butcher, and the girl went to a seamstress, and I don't know where the other two boys went. So the girl Marlene is talking about is Herman's younger sister, Mary, born in 1898. In the 1980s, Mary and Marlene's mom, Eileen, did amazing family research. Some of the information comes from Mary's own recollection. Okay, so how the story goes, John and Apollonia moved to the Bridesburg area in the late 1880s. On the same street corner, they had started to make some friends. One was the Fitzmeyers. These were the butchers who lived diagonally across from the Feld family. Unfortunately, when John Sr. died unexpectedly, the mother Apollonia pushed each kid to live with families who spoke English and did a trade. Harry lived with the butcher, Charles Fitzmeyer. Mary lived with a dressmaker named Annie Killian. John worked at an electric works. And Herman worked at a saw works. From around 1905 to 1916, these siblings lived and worked at their respective trades making around $5 a week. But Apollonia didn't get to see her sons much before she died in 1916 of reactive depression. She did get to see Mary though. Mary would buy groceries for Apollonia every week. And later after her brothers came back from World War I, Mary would actually work at a grocery store in New Jersey for the next 20 years. She describes how Apollonia was a good cook and would bake for the Fitzmeyers. In her words, everything done in a big way like barrels of flour, apples, lard, etc. Here is Marlene talking about Harry. He did most of the cooking. He was a great cook. I don't know where he learned that from either, but... I mean, it could possibly come from his butcher days and joining the Fitzmeyers' feasts. I'm mentioning all of this because that intersection in the heart of Bridesburg, where the Fitzmeyers and Phelps lived, was a respite home for decades to come. Mary remembers Herman and John boarding at the Fitzmeyers when they returned from the war in 1919. And apparently, they rented a room to a high-ranking officer in the arsenal, which is what got Harry and his wife a job there. But it was these pivotal years before the war, when John and Herman were in their early 20s, that defined who they were as soldiers. Unfortunately, their father John Sr. never created a will, so paperwork had to go through orphan's court from Germany for the oldest sons John and Herman to sign. They were all on their own, and the war seemed like the best option as a way to escape. Here is John's letter about the Argonne Offensive the deadliest battle in American history. After a brief period of rest, we were transferred by motor trucks to a reserve position in the forest of Argonne, north of Verdun. The Germans held the strong points in the wooded heights just beyond the village and poured a vicious fire from machine guns. Our casualties were heavy, and I'm sorry to say that our artillery fire was very feeble on account of being unable to get the guns in position as the roads were shell-torn and soft from constant rain. This is in October of 1918. Herman is also in this same battle, but his brother John may not have known that he was there. For his battalion, John served as a German interpreter in the US and in France most likely picked up by his mother Apollonia when he was younger. John was in the same regiment with the famous sergeant Alvin York, 
Storming Hill 223, fighting in the most relentless offensive that lasted 47 days until the war ended. For 26 days, we were in the forest of Argonne. We had very little time to eat or sleep. We all were exhausted. And every time the Germans took one step backwards, we would advance three. This work was a carnival of death and destruction, and no one can picture in their mind what the men suffered and felt, because there is no pen that can properly describe the scenes and conditions experienced by a soldier. My Uncle John wrote two articles to the newspapers in Bridesburg of what was going on over there, and they're absolutely beautiful letters. Like I said, they had no education whatsoever. They're really gorgeous. They honestly are. We also have to realize that the Germans were the ones who the Allies fought against, which probably was hard for the Fell brothers, because their parents were German immigrants. And most recruits with German ties were not allowed to even fight with American regiments. Even though the quiet and reserved Herman would probably describe his experiences in a different way, the letters from his brother John and brother-in-law Leo shine a light on the same empirical wartime horrors. There's even a stage picture of John from World War I in his retirement article. He looks small and yet stoic, motivated with the will to fight. We are proud of our record in France and on the battlefield. We are proud of the fact that we Americans from nearly every great state of our great union and of various races and religions worked in harmony as brothers in the face of the enemy. And to my total surprise, Marlene found a picture of Herman in World War I from 1917, the only picture of him as an adult we know of. The picture is just of his face and torso, unlike John's full-body military photograph. Although Herman most likely has the first edition songbook by this time, he won't have the signed one until early 1918. Here's his brother-in-law, Leo McCabe, after fighting in France. April 20th, 1918. I haven't seen anyone I know since I've been here, but I guess I will run across someone shortly. Well, things are very quiet now, and once in a while there may be a little gas come over, but that, that is about all. We've got that gas under our wing with our masks, I hope you and the girls are well as I never was feeling in better condition as I am now. Goodbye for the present. Your son, Leo. Leo talks about how he grew a mustache, has gained some weight, and the types of women he saw in France. He even met someone from the neighborhood area of Frankfurt in the same military company. Here is Yari again. The men, the men sang all the time. They sang on the march, you know, while, while they were marching. They sang when it was possible in the trenches, and these books were very important for them uh, to use, you know, up up at the front so that they, they could sing together. The cartoons and sheet music of popular music in the book were the only form of any media a soldier really had on them. These are one of the only visual and oral aspects in their fighting abroad that reminded them of home. It was to help morale. Unfortunately, in some ways, you know, World War One has sort of become our forgotten war uh, because our involvement with it was very brief. 
However, in that brief period of time, we mobilized two or three million men to fight. It was the, up to that point the, the the largest and quickest mobilization of, of troops that we ever had, and music was just so much of it because all these troops that were mobilized. This songbook shows us that through death, suffering, and destruction, we can still unite in song to feel comfortable with the men and women we are fighting with. It's just a lot different today. Today, there really can't be one all-encompassing book that would include every single style. It would just be too big to carry in your pocket. There really isn't the need for uh, songbooks today as there were back then, which is in, in a way kind of sad because it was an activity that promoted, you know, teamwork, promoted people being together. There isn't, you know, anything like being able to sing in a choir. So that is why it feels fit to cherish something that won't be made the same ever again. Here are Leo's letters before fighting in the Battle of San Miel with Herman. August 6th, 1918. French critics look for the war to be over before Christmas, and I sure believe, and so does everyone else. I had a heavy cold recently, but it is wearing off now. August, 1918. The weather is very bad here the last week back. Expect to go up again shortly the ways things look. It'll be either hell, Hoboken, or heaven before Christmas, and you can tell the world it will be Hoboken and then Philadelphia. I am as ever your brother, Leo T. McCabe. Leo died a month later, at 19 years old. In a letter from the chaplain who was in his battalion to Leo's other sister, they said that they lost track of his entire infantry. This was in the Battle of San Miel, where the Allied forces attempted to stop Germans from encroaching on France's northeast border. The battle lasted four days, and Leo died on the first day of fighting. Hermann Felb, his brother-in-law, was in this same battle. Leo is now buried at an American cemetery in San Miel. Marlene's sisters actually went over to France and visited his grave. From this battle, the AEF was told to go north and in turn sparked the infamous Moussargon Offensive, where both Herman and John fought. Their infantry was relieved on an important day. Here is John Felb again. This time, the date was Halloween night when ghosts and goblins are supposed to do stunts, and the thought came to me as we were on our way in the rear that perhaps the spirits of our departed comrades walked with us and were conscious of the fact that they had not died in vain. This was the last battle fought in World War I. The war ended 11 days after Felb's Halloween memory. There was carnage in the darkness, and in the light there was music, comforting, corralling, and inspiring young men and women to fight together against a tyrannical enemy. France is rich in history, rich in tradition, and suffering. However, for my part, I long for America and a little town in Philadelphia called Bridesburg, for I am an American, born in America, and hope to spend the rest of my days in America. Yours sincerely, Sergeant John Felb, American Expeditionary Forces, France. Like the unassuming songbook that has a whole world of music history and culture inside, I believe that Hermann Felb was quite the same. His life stories come alive from the accounts of his siblings 
and his great niece, Marlene. It's uh, so amazing, the stories they took to the grave with them. I appreciate you uh, persevering to get in touch because this is, this is really neat. I didn't know where I was going to leave when my cousin uh, emailed me, but it's been, it's been great. It's been a real pleasure, and I appreciate everything. Thank you, Marlene. This show can't be done without people being vulnerable to share their family history. From a pocket-sized book to the full-fledged harrowing accounts of war, we have learned just a little bit more about the quiet man, Mr. Herman Phelps. Thank you for joining us on another Object Obscure Adventure, where every object has a story. We're going to post all the pictures of the book, pictures of the Feld brothers, on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. This was a production of the Obscurity Podcast Network. Thank you to Yari Villanueva for sharing your time to answer questions about a 103-year-old songbook. Please go to Yari's website, tapsbugler.com. You can donate, do some research, or listen to a bunch of songs he's archived there. There's also a centennial in early November of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, and Yari's taps and music, Going Home, was featured in that ceremony. You can check that out on YouTube. Also check out Taps for Veterans at tapsforveterans.org. Thank you to Ron McGee and Jonathan Casey from the Edwards Jones Research Center and the World War I Museum. Go check out the museum in Kansas City. It was an inspiration for how I designed this episode, and honestly, the best war museum I've been to. Finally, thank you to Marlene Grass and everyone in the family who chipped in with a little bit of information. There were so many amazing sources sent to me, and I felt honored to help them out. Voice of John Felb was done by Robert Anthony Peters. Voice of Leo T. McCabe was done by Ben Hess. Special thanks to Jeff from Etsy, AX4 from eBay, Macy Reed, Jerry Schmidt, Eric Reynoso, Emily Field Caprile, Perry Pyle, Corey Stewart, and John Reznikoff. This was an Anchor Distributed Podcast. Produced, written, edited, scored, mixed, and fact-checked by me. The theme song is Behind the Walls by my great friend Nathany. Please go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Even if you're listening on something else right now, please go there and give us a star rating and write a review. It really helps us out. You can also give us a donation. There's a PayPal donation button on our website, object-obscura.com. Anything helps us to investigate more amazing stories in the future for a possible next season. Want to reach out to us? Well, you can send us a message on Facebook at Object Obscura Podcast, Instagram at Object.Obscura, and Twitter at Object Obscura. It can be about an object you want discussed on the show, anything obscure, or a cool story about material culture. Episode 15, the last episode of Season 2, will come out in two weeks. Have a great Thanksgiving, and we'll keep going with the theme of music until the next modern episode. We're going to the 90s. We were all really worried about her family. There was these series of blasts. And I, I mean, I just remember, you know, constantly being afraid for friends and family. Oh, he said he's a terrorist. He's a such a nice guy. He's a very lovable guy. See you then. <laughs>